Hello and welcome back to another episode of Corner of Life. Just a quick disclaimer before we get into this. This is going to be an episode in which we talk about mental health, self-harm, suicidal tendencies, thoughts, um, and it may upset some listeners. So if you are someone who's suffering from mental health issues or know someone who is, please, please reach out to them. Um, if you're in the UK, you can use stuff like Samaritans, everything like that, but please just talk about your mental health. So anyway, hello, welcome back to Corner of Life. Uh, I'm Spencer, and this is going to be a series in which I unpick and unravel my mental health um, and talk about certain areas of it and everything like that. So as I was talking about in the first episode, I'm going to be going through more kind of where my mental health started in this episode and the initial kind of diagnosis of it and along with how my life was at that point in time. So I can't remember if I mentioned it in the other one, I think I did, but I got diagnosed with at 14 years old um, with severe clinical depression and obviously naturally comes along with that, you get anxiety, but I'm not diagnosed with anxiety. <clears throat> so... I got yeah diagnosed at 14, um, which was 2011-ish, um, but obviously it started prior to that, that was just when I was diagnosed, so I don't really recall the pinpoint in which it did start, um, so like that kind of time and place or a certain thing, I just know that that was when, well that's why I remember that I was diagnosed from. <clears throat> um, so I kind of want to talk about what kind of stuff I was experiencing at the time, um, quite a deep one, which was when I had the first conversation with my dad about my mental health and how that came about. Dealing with it at school, um, what kind of it stopped me doing, and then also how it kind of affected my learning and my college choices as well. So there probably will be bits in this where I kind of get choked up or I get quite emotional with it because it is something that's still quite emotional for me dealing with. <coughs> I've got a stupid cough as well, so I do apologise for that. So... To kind of start off, I'll talk about how I was kind of feeling at the time. Um, and it's very, very standard what you'll hear with depressive kind of mental health. Um, you know, constantly doubting myself. I hated everything about myself. I never saw kind of any positives in anything. Um, I was very... I kind of noticed I've always been an outgoing person, but I was very... Kind of started going more introvert and started avoiding doing things. I started avoiding everything I was doing. Everything I loved, I, I that at the time I was doing, I did a lot of rugby, I did a lot of hockey, I did a lot of, a lot of sport kind of growing up. Um, I really started to hate. I started like really resenting going to it. I really started like pulling away as much as I could, but in the same manner of not letting people click on to what I was doing. So the last thing I wanted to do was let people know how I was really feeling. I felt incredibly embarrassed by the way I felt, and I felt incredibly ashamed by the way I felt as well. And I'll get more into that in a minute. But yeah, I started kind of noticing that I wasn't feeling right when I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy in anything I was doing. I wasn't enjoying anything. It would it was taking me longer and longer to get out of bed in the morning. I just had this severe lack of drive or motivation to do anything. Um, and I don't know if you've heard it, but you might have heard of the kind of big, I think it's a big, black dog or big red dog um that kind of sits on you and it grows and grows and grows if you haven't youtube it, it's a phenomenal little clips kind of just kind of describe how depression feels um but you kind of just feel weighted constantly and it's not just a case of like it's just hard to get out of bed or anything like that it, like there were some days where it was just physically impossible you know and there were some days where it was like mentally so 
fucked and drained and exhausted to the point where I didn't even want to move. Like, I didn't want to get out of bed or I didn't want to, you know, do anything. Like it was so tiring just being alive in my headspace that doing anything extra just became a real task, which then I just lost it all enjoyment for everything. Um, I started distancing myself from people, um, those that were my best mates and everything like that, I really started pulling away from them. I didn't want to do stuff outside of school. I didn't want to socialize as much. I was more content, like destroying myself in my headspace and looking back than I was even just playing football or like fucking around or doing anything like that. So I started to really notice those kind of behaviors because um, I'm a very self-aware person. And looking back now, I can pinpoint more in a time period where that started going wrong than I would have been able to do at any point at that point. So, yeah, it was 2011 um, when I... I think it was 2012 that I got diagnosed. But 2011 was when it kind of all started for me. <clears throat> um, and it came out and, like, I'm just going to dive straight into the deep bit of this because it's going to be quite a... I think it's, it's the bit that's kind of sitting and making me kind of choke a bit more. Um, so it was that first conversation that I had with my dad about it. Um, and I've been self-harming for a while at this point and I did all the standard shit that most people do when they self-harm is you hide it the place that I was doing all of mine one was on my left forearm um, I don't know why it was just the one place that kind of struck to me the most and it sounds really really stupid but the reason I was doing it was because it was a relief and it was an instant kind of um release of this tension that I had had built up and every time that I cut my skin and you know, did these deeper cuts and everything like that that it just felt like a weight off my shoulders and then it becomes addictive because then you're kind of finding that that's the only thing that fixes it whereas now I know there's, there's so much more that does that and there's so much more healthier ways to manage mental health and cope with it all but back then that was the only thing that I'd found that like released tension and let me just feel okay momentarily. So I started just cutting and self-harming. Um, I never did burning or anything like that. It was just for me cutting. And I used to use a razor blade from a sharpener um, as the main kind of thing that I used to use. And it was a little kind of plastic sharpener as you get as kids and everything like that. But I remember I'd just take it apart and I would smash it um, to get that blade out. And then... Yeah, just cut myself on my wrist with it, um, which was, <laughs> looking back now, it's crazy to like know the extent of what I was doing it at and everything like that. I got very, very lucky with my scars is that most of them have healed so well that they're not visible. If you were to look and really look at where that location is on my arm, or when I say location, it's like kind of my whole forearm, um, but you can see where all the scars are, um, but... I got very lucky with the healing process of mine, which did me favours later on because, you know, um, it's not, you know, it's one of those things that a lot of people see self-harm scars and they instantly still judge. Or there's that instant thing where it's like, oh, you know, they've been through shit, they've been through hard times. And it's like, yeah, they fucking have. Like, but the last thing they need is you staring at it and everything like that. And that's one thing that I still really sits with me. Um, I'm I'm very open and honest about my mental health and I'm very open and honest about my self-harm and everything like that. And I tell people all about it, but it's still one of those things for me that sits quite heavy on my shoulders um, when I talk about 
when I used to self-harm and stuff like that. And I say lucky, but to me it is. Some people have completely different perspectives. Um, but I don't have those majorly visible scars anymore. But, <clears throat> yeah, I started self-harming. Um, yeah, razor blades from sharpeners were my kind of main source. I also used scissors and knives and stuff like that. Basically anything sharp I could get my hands on. And I remember, <laughs> I remember I had a knife hit in my room. And my dad found it one day. And it's before he kind of knew about my mental health and whatnot. And I just passed it off. I passed it off as I was so batshit scared of someone coming into the house or anything like that, and I wanted to protect myself, you know. Which I, f I feel incredibly sorry for for my dad because then it made him question the fact that his son in his own house felt unprotected, you know. So looking back on that, it's even like conflicting thoughts and that kind of motion. Whereas now I know the real reason why I had the knife in my room, and obviously I knew at the time anyway. I just couldn't tell him that. So along with the self-harm, obviously, depending how severe you are in your depression and your depressive thoughts, uh, I had a lot of suicidal thoughts as well and a lot of suicidal tendencies. The main reason I'm still here today is that I could never follow through with it because I, I knew how much pain I was in and I didn't want to inflict that onto my family or onto those that I loved around me. Um, because the pain that I was going through was at times unbearable, but I couldn't inflict that onto my mum or my dad or my siblings or you know my partners at the time or anything like that, um, because I was so you know they didn't know about my mental health and I don't want them to go through life thinking that it, they could have done anything more or anything like that. If that, that makes any kind of sense. But yeah, I had a lot of suicidal thoughts and tendencies at the same point. Um, really they were hard they were very very hard and it wasn't even particular things that would set it off and it was that thing of in your head it's like yeah you you should fucking die you should fucking kill yourself or anything like that like you're fucking worthless like you do not matter and i can replay those thoughts over and over and over because they were so prominent consistently and it was like you'd fuck up or you'd upset someone and it's amplified 10 times over and you're then just sat there being like, oh, I'm, I'm a fucking shit person, like I don't deserve to live. Which is it's crazy now, because like looking back 11 years on, you know, since then I'm not going to sit here and bullshit and lie and say that I haven't thought about self-harming or suicidal thoughts or anything like that. There's still thoughts that I have, not regularly, but multiple times throughout the year. And especially when I'm in a depressive episodes, they are still there. I'm just better at dealing with them now and I'm better at reasoning with them and understanding and being compassionate and empathetic with myself when they are there. Um, and everyone deserves to live. Everyone, regardless of who they are, they deserve to live. It, it, to take someone's own life and to feel like you have to take your own life is horrible for. And to live with that on a day-to-day -day kind of lifestyle is so, so difficult. Um, especially, you know, at 14 years old when I was, is I didn't, I didn't fucking know what I was doing in my life. I was going through puberty. I'm going through big, big change in my life anyway. And then I've got these really depressive thoughts just going like, fuck you, basically. But yeah, I had a lot of suicidal thoughts and tendencies. Um, there was multiple times where 
I'd be walking somewhere or sat somewhere and I think I was moments away from attempting to do it. And every time that I've had this in my life where I've been almost like a hairline away from being in that position where it's pushed over and I want to do it and then I go to do it, I have the same images pop up in my head. And I'm I'm not going to talk about those images because they're specific to me and that's that's my personal images that I want to keep for me. Um, but it's all to do with family and everything like that. But, and that's what holds me back and that's the reason I'm still alive today and that's the reason I'm still here and I'm, I'm very, very grateful for the fact that I am able to hold on to those images so well because I, even though I still struggle now, I adore my life and I love the life that I've got and everything that I've been through and I look back to 14-year-old me and I know how much I was in pain and struggling. But everything I did there got me to where I am today and in a position I can help others and um, enjoy life when I can. But, yeah, going back to when my dad found out, it was New Year's Eve of 2011. I was hosting, you know, I'm 14, we're drinking at my house with a couple of mates, having a laugh. And I decided to wear, you know, in a slightly drunk state, all controlled, you know, don't consume alcohol, that kind of crap, underage, you know, yada, yada, yada. But we were supervised by my parents in, you know, private property. And in that slightly intoxicated state, you know, I was hot, so I took off my long sleeve and put a short sleeve on. At which point left all my cuts exposed. Um, and I remember in the kitchen, my dad then saw it and kind of grabbed my arm and was like, you know, what are these, what are these all like, like what's going on? Um, and <laughs> like an instant flood barrier came over me and every single bit of emotion I'd been backstoring just flooded out. And I can remember it was leaning against the kitchen, he's leaning there, I'm literally just bawling into his chest. Um, just just telling them how I feel and the big thing that I look at when I'm talking about that kind of situation is I just felt ashamed I felt like I'd let him down that I should have been doing all these things and like looking back now I know that that wasn't the case at all Yeah, looking back now, I know that, that wasn't the case at all. It was all just stuff that my mindset had created and kind of festered to make me believe. You know, my dad tells me how much he he's proud of me and he loves me. And whoever, he will forever be that man that I look up to in my life. But I just felt very ashamed and very vulnerable and everything like that. But that moment was kind of when that flip happened in my development and we had a chat for two hours I remember it very well and as intoxicated as I was that two hours will stay in my mind forever um, and yeah we spoke about it very heavily I was open and honest I told him exactly how I was feeling exactly what I was doing you know, and then from there, um, 
yeah, eventually rejoined my friends and <laughs> enjoyed the the New Year's for what it was. Um, following that New Year's Eve was then when my dad took action for my health for me, um, and it was really weird because back then it it made me in a very weird position resent the fact that he had done that because I'd confided in him and I didn't want him to tell anyone but looking back on it a year later I was incredibly thankful that he did because he got me on that track to start repairing myself um and being in that position of time like it's not something especially when it's it's forced out of you and you're not ready to talk about it it becomes very demoralizing because all kind of control and everything like that is taken away from you. And I was 14, I'm under my parents' guard, like, guardian. Like, they're my guardians, they've, they've got to do these things. Because I'm 14, I don't know any better. But straight off the bat, I realised a year later, like, the importance of what they did and how thankful I am for them for doing everything that they did and making me go to these appointments and making me go to the GP and doing these things. Um, because it it saved my life. You know, I I genuinely don't think that if that night hadn't happened, I would be in this position that I am today. Um, so, yeah, following that kind of event, me and Dad had a conversation about it a few days later. Um, and it made me worse for a while because it was on the surface then. And it was then not something that I'd been hiding away. And I started self-harming more and all of these kind of things. Um, and I still kept everything covered up. I still, you know, I wasn't then just wearing short sleeves on a house or anything like that. I would only wear long sleeves. Um, and I would hide it. I didn't want my siblings to find out. So as far as I'm aware, they didn't know at the time. They didn't know until a few years later. Um, it was something that was kept between me and my mum and my dad. Um, so anyway, following all of that and following talk to the GPs and I had a few nights where I remember I'm sat in my room it's like 1am um, and when the suicidal thoughts were the highest I was on the phone to um, like Samaritans and the suicide hotline and stuff like that um, and I don't know who those people were but they were phenomenal they were, they were absolutely fantastic they helped me refer myself. They helped me go through and get pushed by GPs and everything like that to be in a better position with it all. Um, and long story short, it was from there we then went and I got referred into CAMS, which I can't remember what the acronym stands for now, but I hated it. I, I really, really hated it. CAMS for me was torture. I wasn't in a position where I wanted to talk about it which for me is the biggest thing with therapy. You have to be ready for therapy. Otherwise you're put into a position where you don't want to be. So I resented it and I really, really hated it. I remember sat there. I only went to two sessions before. It was just no point in going back because they knew that it wasn't working. Um, and I went and I sat there. I refused to look at the therapist. I sat in the corner of the room, knees to my chest and just avoided all eye contact and didn't even acknowledge that there was someone else in the room with me. Which, you know, it was hell. The therapist is trying to do their job. You know, they've got a kid put in front of them 
who feels the way to do and they want to help them and the kid won't open up. It's very difficult. I can imagine it being horrible. But me being the kid I was and not being in a position where I was ready to, you know, I'd spoke to my dad about it because it had been forced upon that kind of conversation. It wasn't a, a conversation that I went to him to have. You know, I wouldn't change it. But then to then try and go into a room with a random person you don't know, you don't trust, you you know, some people it's great, but for me it was horrible and I hated it. Um, at the same point, my dad had spoke to my tutor at school, um, who was absolutely fucking phenomenal. Like he, he was like my school dad, and you know, a guy called Mister Blannon. Um, absolutely phenomenal. He was absolutely rock for me. Um, I, there were so many periods in school where I would walk in on the break and just fucking have a breakdown, you know, because I'd just be like, I can't do it today. I'm, I can't do it. Um, and he, he was just there for me, and he understood it, and he. He pulled me out the lessons I needed to. He got me to the places I needed to go. He tried to set up a support network through the school with the counsellors through school, um, which again was something that I resented and I, I tried to avoid going to it and I would pretend like I'd forgotten, just not turn up to these sessions or anything like that because again, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be talking about it. But whenever I went into him and I was just like, look, I'm, I'm fucking struggling. I can't do this today. You know, he would... He would talk to the people that needed to be spoken to and get me the help there and then that I needed. You know, he, he was absolutely phenomenal. I cannot thank him enough for that. So, <laughs> Mr. Blanning, if you ever listen to this, like, massive, massive thank you. You're a phenomenal person. Um, but, yeah, it was... I then got the counselling through the school as well, which, annoyingly, because obviously I'm in school, they can pull me out of lessons for and they can come collect me from lessons as well. And I would always just avoid going to it because I didn't want to be there. And I wouldn't talk to them. I'd do the exact same thing that I did at CAMS. I would sit there. I would not talk. I would avoid it. Um, and I think they tried to do like six sessions. And on the sixth session, I just turned in. I walked in and I literally just looked at them. I just said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not comfortable doing this. And I think at that point, they stopped it for my sake more than anything. Um, but they continuously checked in with me following that, and I can't, I can't doubt, like I cannot fault the school system at the time. They were phenomenal. They did their job. They just were dealing with someone who didn't want to be respect, like receptive with that support network. And half the time with stuff like that, that is the issue. The school systems are phenomenal, um, especially the ones that I've experienced. Just the person in question that are trying to get the support for doesn't want it which for me was the case. I didn't want the that support network, which, you know, caused them issues because then they're start trying to make ends meet when they've got someone who doesn't want those ends to meet. And I was doing everything to make sure that those ends didn't meet. Looking back now, it's something that I potentially should have done, but I know that I wasn't ready to, so I'm not, I'm not sat there resenting it. I'm not sat there. If I was in a position where I could go and do therapy all over again now, I 100% would. I, I think therapy's phenomenal. I think it's a tool that, it's severely underrated, but I think the therapist has to be specifically suited to the individual in question because you're not going to get along with every therapist. So school were phenomenal. My, my support networks are there. I just didn't want to use them because, and I think it's mainly for the position of the fact that I wasn't ready to talk about it with people yet. Um, 
and my dad would constantly not constantly my dad would try and have conversations with me and sometimes I would have them with him and sometimes I wouldn't um about my mental health and stuff like that it just depended on the position I was in at the time and if I felt comfortable enough to do it because I still wasn't in you know I'm still trying to figure out life at this point and I'm still trying to understand what's going on with me and sometimes uh, being a 14 15 year old lad you don't want to talk about your emotions you know it's very natural um but it's also one that I think helped me learn that it's very needed um, to talk about these emotional kind of positions and everything like that. So, yeah, following all of that, there was episodes where it got worse. There was episodes where it got better. I remember there was an episode where I was in quite a bad place mentally. Um, like, I, my arm was plastered in cuts and... No one was aware of how much I had been self-harming at that point. And my dad hadn't realised how bad it had gotten at that point as well. Um, and this is post him finding the first set of cuts and everything like that. And it was a few months down the line and I gone and broke my arm. And it was my left hand that I broke. And as I'm in hospital, they've pulled up my sleeve to take a look and it was it was it was on my arm on my hand it was my wrist they've pulled up my sleeve to x-ray it and do all that stuff and have a look at it at which point it's revealed all the cuts to both the nurse and my dad um which knocked me for seven um you know because again it's showing people your self-harm cuts and stuff in a position that is kind of out of your control and isn't involuntary um, obviously the nurse was doing her job and my dad was there because I'm, you know, I was a minor at that point. I'm four, fifth, I think I was 14 and a half at this point. I'm being close to 15, but obviously he's there as a legal protector. And then, yeah, as they've done that, it, the room went silent. I remember the moment, because we're just in a cubicle, us three. And that moment felt like years and years and years. It felt like eternity of just that silence. Of the nurse just going, basically, oh fuck, what do I do? Because when you, you know, when they find mental health stuff and stuff like that, I know this is back then, this is, you know, what, 11 years ago now, um, they have to do slightly different procedure. They have to have it on record, do mental, like mental health and stuff like that, and self harm, especially in the area that she was treating. Um, and my dad was kind of taken back and, uh, a very a kind of really hard hitting moment happened, and I could see I could see the pain in his face. And I remember as I turned around and looked at him, as the nurse left, he turned around and said, "You've done it more since, haven't you?" <laughs> I've just broke out crying again. It's like yeah, and I just remember him putting his hand on my hand and you know just being like, he didn't say anything, but he didn't need to. Um, because I could, I could see it hurt him seeing that, you know, and, and I'd, I'd feel the same if it was my son, if I had a son, um, and to see your, you know, your kids in pain isn't something I think any parent wants to experience, um, especially when it's a mental health kind of pain or anything like that, um, and yeah, I remember, I remember that look, and I, I remember feeling 
feeling that pain for me of causing him pain. It was, it was one of those weird situations where it's like he's feeling pain for me and I'm feeling pain for him and that kind of crap. But it, it yeah, the, I have memories like that where it's stuck. Um, and they're painful memories, but they're good memories because they're moments that change, like led to a change of me. Um, and I can't remember what point my mental health started improving whilst I was in school. Um, but I remember the driving factors for that was I, I want to do it for my family. I want to, I want to be in better health. I want to be, I'm, I'm fed up of feeling constantly shit. I'm fed up of dreading every day. I'm dreading waking up in the morning. I'm dreading leaving the house. I'm dreading having to get out of bed. All this simple shit that we take for granted every day. Um, so I can't remember that point where I started to come out of that dip. I was in the first massive dip that I had. Um, but I just knew that life was never going to be the same after that. And it hasn't been, but it's been a phenomenal life that I've had. Um, but yeah, I'll explore that hopefully more in the future. Um, when I was 14, going through all of this, it stopped me doing a lot. It stopped me playing the sports that I enjoyed doing. It stopped me participating in a lot of things. Um, I was an avid rugby player at the time. And our kit was obviously all short sleeve. And my go around for that was that I had sprained my wrist or forearm. So I was constantly bandaged up. And that was kind of way that I was getting around it. Was that whenever... So I was like, oh, you know, to hide all my cuts and cover up the cuts and everything like that. I was just wearing bandages to and saying that I'd sprain my forearm or wrist because no one would question that. And they'd just be like, oh, that's a shame. Or like, oh, like, how'd you do? I'd just be like, falling over. Um, and yeah, it, there was times where I was almost like wearing a bandaged sleeve on my arm to just avoid showing people that. And then I kind of got into just wearing constant, like, long sleeve undershirts and stuff like that to hide it. Um, and there was times where I think people noticed and I would just instantly remove myself from that situation so they couldn't ask me about it and just hope that they hadn't or they had forgot about it um, and everything like that. And I remember in my last year of school when I was, I wasn't self-harming, Just I was still self-harming, that's a lie. But it was nowhere near as much and it was more controlled. Um, and it was nowhere near as frequent. Um, even like going into summers and everything like that, I would wear long sleeve shirts at school. Constant, just long sleeve shirts. And the only reason why was for hiding my self-harm. It wasn't for comfort, it wasn't for this. I would love to be wearing short sleeves all the time. It's fucking hot. But I would wear long sleeves to avoid showing that because it still made me feel weak. And there's elements today that still make me feel weak when I show it, but I know logically and realistically it's not at all. I'm everything like that. But yeah, it stopped me doing a lot and it, it completely changed a lot of the things that I did. Um, with the amount of mental toll that it took as well, um, it really hit my grades quite hard um, because I just wasn't paying attention. I was so exhausted all the time that I would fuck around in class. I, would, you know, I wasn't never paying attention. I was always looking to do other shit. 
Um, you know, I think I'm naturally one of those fluky people that can get by with grades quite easily. Um, so I never did phenomenally bad at school, but I know I had potential to do a lot better. And when it came to making a college choice, um, I just went mechanics. Because I knew it was something that for me was brain dead because cars was the only kind of thing that I enjoyed at that time. Um, and so I'm a fully qualified mechanic, which works quite well. You know, I can't remember shit about it now, but I went in, just did two years of, in a sense, of just mundane, easy work as in, like, learning to be a mechanic to get me through. Because at that point, I didn't think I was going to amount to much. And then, like, my mental health got better for a period um, in that. It still went up and down, up and down, but as a whole, it didn't dip as bad as it had in school. I was a lot more kind of grown at that point. I started looking after myself a lot more. Um, and yeah, it, may, it, it majorly affected that first two years I did at college, um, which really interests me because it's like if I hadn't been in that position, where would I be today? You know, Not from like a positive or negative standpoint. Like I love where I am today. I won't, don't want to change it. But it always interests me because it was two years of my life that I basically did someone else for and then kind of came onto the career path that I am now. So I would have met completely different people. I probably would have been in a completely different place, um, doing different things, you know, everything. So, yeah, it, it's one of those... Uh, there's loads and loads of areas that my mental health affected for me. Um, I've kind of touched in briefly on areas in here. But there's so many different areas. And that was just kind of an insight into those first couple of years with it when I was 14 I can go more in depth but there's some bits that I'm probably not ready to talk about yet so I don't acknowledge them um, and there's other bits that like my first conversations telling my mates and everything like that as well that I'll probably talk about in the future and how I'm in a position where I can talk about it openly and honestly and feel good for doing so as well um, but I'm just going to kind of wrap it all up there like Growing up and being mentally unwell during school, for me, was hard. Um, and my, the people that were there for me at that point in time and were my support network, 1,000% saved my life. Like, 100%. I cannot criticise anything that they did. You know, my mum and dad did everything fantastically for me there was even to a point where <laughs> a few months in following where my dad had found out on every film me and dad had a big argument because i was a little shit as a kid growing up i openly admit i was a little shit you know classic middle child i didn't i just did everything um my dad bollocked me and I was emotionally vulnerable at the time, so I took it a little bit harder than usual. I just, I went to my room, crawled into my bed, faced the wall, and just fucking cried. Um, and my dad came in, and I think I'd worried him so much, and he was so worried that he had pushed me quite hard um, when he was telling me off, because he was like, he came in, and he was like, you know, like, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to shout at you, I know you're struggling, and all these kind of things, it was just in the moment. And I, 
it's someone that I feel really, really bad for, and it's a moment that stuck with me as well because it's I didn't acknowledge that. I didn't acknowledge his pain in that situation. I didn't acknowledge the fact that he'd understood that he'd reacted to my me being a dick, basically. Um, and he shouted at me and everything like that. And I don't blame him. Like, the, you know, he's a parent. He should, he should, you know. I was out of line being a knobhead, you know, regardless of my mental health or anything like that. It's not an excuse for me being a debt, but like Belland, you know. Um, so, yeah, by, he was fully within his right to bollock me. But I think he was just so worried about that that he came in and he really apologised. And I ignored it because... You know, emotionally, I was just fucking stupid. Um, and there's moments like that that obviously I can never change or anything like that. And it's something now that when I've grown up, me and my dad talk about a lot more. Um, that relationship. And we talk a lot more about my mental health and, you know, how much I've grown and changed because of it all. And don't think that by <laughs> by all means as well, like my mum wasn't doing massive parts of me and my health. Um my mum was absolutely phenomenal with my mental health because she kind of understood it. She had had, uh, I think it was pre-pregnancy, um, depression at some point. I think it was with me, I can't remember who. Um, but my mum was just as there for me as my dad was. I just, you know, I just talk about moments of my dad at the moment, but I definitely will talk about some of my mum as well. But my parents were phenomenal. They They did everything perfectly for me, what I needed. I couldn't have asked them to do any more. Um, so I've got I've got absolute admiration and respect for both my parents. And then, you know, so many other people that have been phenomenal for me, like my you know, my tutor at school, Mark Lannan, is absolutely phenomenal for me and did far more than I ever gave him credit for. Far, far more. That guy was a godsend. Um so yeah, that was kind of an insight into my early years mental health. And kind of figuring out that I was depressed um, and everything like that as well. I'm getting a diagnosis and what kind of, well, a small kind of insight into what it did to me and how it affected me and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm going to wrap it all up there. So thank you for listening. This has been Corner of Life with me, Spencer. Um, I hope you're okay uh, after listening to that. Um, if you do need to reach out, then please reach out. Don't suffer in silence. Um, stay well really and I'll see you in the next episode